Our text of study this morning is going to be in John chapter 11. We're going to finish up the last few verses of this chapter. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand what is better for you, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one place the children of God who are scattered abroad. For, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be back here with you this morning and uh, continuing to do what we do, which is make much of Jesus, make much of his word, make much of his self-revelation to us so that we might be formed by it, changed by it. Have you guys heard of this new sport I think it's a sport. I think it's a sport because it's actually got a championship. It's called slap fighting. Anyone? Like, show of hands. Yes, you've heard of slap fighting. You know what I'm talking about. It's kind of come, become popular the last, I don't know, year, year and a half. You see it probably on YouTube, probably because you've had entirely too much time watching YouTube the last couple years. Um, but basically, as far as we can tell, the origins are like in Russia. And, uh, and I've become somewhat obsessed with it. To be honest with you, watching these little short videos of these two guys slapping each other silly. Um, it's become quite a, like, I mean, seriously, it's become quite a popular thing. It's went viral on YouTube and in various ways. I've seen it pop up in different, different formats. Um, but basically, here's a tutorial of what happens. Two guys, all right, stand across from one another, across from a table, maybe a pulpit or some sort, and they just trade slaps across the table at each other until one passes out. That's pretty much what it is. This is, this is, I am not joking. I am not joking. This is a big deal. It's quite underground for a long time, but now because everyone's interest in it had gotten so peaked, they've actually formed like a, there's like a world championships for slap fighting now. Go check it out, man. I don't, I am, I can't make this stuff up. I promise you. So they trade these open-handed slap, uh, slaps on one another. There's no headgear. There's no protective gear whatsoever. I mean, just literally just beat down slaps across the floor. There's no rules. Like, there's no, there's no weight classes, right? So in boxing, you know, we have weight classes so that you don't just get pummeled by some guy who's, a, you know, 250 pounds 
you know, and the other guy's like 175 pounds. But there's no weight class. And so some of the videos that you watch are like these little scrawny dudes. Let's just call him Sergey because it's in Russia, so I'll just use that word, right? And, and then against, he's like maybe a buck 50, and he's taking on a guy, and I promise you, this is a real name, Dumpling, right, from Serbia. And he's like 300 pounds. I mean, he's enormous. Everyone's lined up behind Dumpling, by the way, because they, they're like, okay, I'm, I'm getting behind this guy because I'm pretty sure I know how this is going to end. And he's just taking blows, and they just trade slaps back and forth until one passes out, goes unconscious, or someone just calls the match, I guess. Well, the phenomenon is about this, though, is that the little guy never learns his lesson. He never learns his lesson. He's getting back up. He's doing the best he can. He's trading these little pathetic, puny blows against Dumplin, all right, and uh, yet gets pummeled. It's pummeled when it's all said and done. I mean, if you watch it in slow-mo, it's a little disturbing. And unfortunately, I've done that. I, I, I might regret it later, but I've done that. Um, the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is like a really unevenly matched slap fight. See, I have purpose there, right? It is. It's like an unevenly matched slap fight. They are unwilling to concede what is the truth about who Jesus is. And they keep trying to level their blows, but they are so overinflated with their own self-importance. They're so, they lack such self-awareness that they keep getting back up in the ring, hoping that the next slap's going to be the one that actually levels everything out for them against Jesus. But the more and more Jesus does his ministry, the more and more John has been revealing who he is in his gospel, the more and more it just becomes almost absurd to wonder why they keep getting back in the ring. Because this is what John's been showing us all the way up until this point in chapter 11. Seven signs of who Jesus is, right? You get the sign of the wedding feast. I won't go through all of them. You get the, the sign of, uh, of the healing of the blind man. You get the sign of, of, of raising Lazarus from the dead, okay? Just to name a few. And all these signs are exposing these the puny and pathetic and deceived nature of the religious leaders' claim on the spiritual life of Israel. Amen. That's what we are seeing being exposed. And Lazarus' resurrection is the pinnacle of that. I mean, it's just right there at the top. And it's why, as we'll, we'll dig out a little bit more here in a few minutes, it's why that this chapter marks, in some way, Jesus, a transition between Jesus' public ministry and what now will be his private ministry until his arrest and death and, res and, and crucifixion. Because, it, listen, at the end of the day, if you're not convinced by the resurrection, what else would convince you, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. But nonetheless, in spite of what they have seen, in spite of what they heard, these Leaders, these religious leaders, and even the Jews as a whole, as we find out here in this verse 45 and 46, is that they are committed to opposing Jesus' rule over their lives. They are committed to thwarting Jesus' mission. And so if we have a, a thought that we want to tease out this morning in our sermon, it is this. To truly follow Jesus, we must conform our perspectives and plans to the priorities and prerogatives of Jesus. All right, let me say that again. This is what we're going to, this is going to be the whole gamut of what we're going to talk about this morning. 
To truly follow Jesus, we must conform our perspectives and our plans to the priorities and prerogatives of Jesus. There's a lot of P words in there. That's a happy accident. I don't normally alliterate, but hey, you know what? If it's helpful to you this morning, so be it, okay? But that's exactly, this statement's going to order our thoughts through the text this morning. Three headings that we're going to walk, unpack, right? The perspectives of men is going to be the first heading. The second heading is going to be the plans of men. The fourth heading is going to be the priorities of Jesus. And then the last heading will be the prerogatives of God, Okay? So let's look at that first heading here in verses 45 and 46. It says the perspectives of men. So again, we've already read it, but let's just kind of remember what they said. So they've seen everything happen with Jesus. They've seen this great pinnacle wonder of uh, the resurrection of Lazarus. They have asked over and over and over again in the course of our study in John, who are you, Jesus? And Jesus has answered them not only through the seven signs, but through, at this point, five of seven I am statements. Who are these I? Who is he? Well, he is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door. He is um, the good shepherd. And he is the resurrection of life and life. He will reserve two more I am statements for private ministry with his disciples. And you'll find out why in a few weeks. The, the, those of which he reserves for them will be I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Again, we'll obviously mind that out here in weeks to come. But it's not like that he, they, he hasn't been answering their question, is he? This has been the whole thing. They're asking a question, but they really don't want it, the answer he's giving. This is really, really important for us to pay attention to. And so as you come to this pinnacle sign of Lazarus' resurrection we talked about last week, you really only have two options of how to respond, Right? And that's what we see in verses 45 and 46. You can either respond with belief or rejection. Belief or rejection. I mean, the simplicity yet the profundity of that choice, it's, it's amazing how that choice has never changed in any age. No matter what challenges we face in the world we live in today, and whoever thinks that somehow or another we have to evolve to meet this, the, 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 uh, the knowledge and the and experience of the world, doesn't understand that this, nothing's changed. It's always been the same. It's always been the same decision before each and every one of us. You either believe or you reject. And the reason why that's important for us to understand is to understand what, what does it mean here when it says these some of these people who came out to Mary and Martha, I'm sorry, came out to, uh, came out, yeah, came out to Mary and Martha to grieve, some of them believed and some of them went to the Pharisees. Well, to believe in John's mind, and let's make sure we're clear about this, is not necessarily a full-throated confession. Like, they didn't, they didn't walk away from this experience with like their I's dotted and their T's crossed on all of their doctrine. But rather, they were beginning the, faith, the journey of faith. They were choosing, I know enough at this point to know that that guy is who he says he is, and I'm going to follow him. Amen. See, there's this great fallacy I think we fall into in the Christian faith that sometimes measures people's genuineness of faith based on informational accommodation. Now again, we take great pride in doctrine here, Grace, as you know, and, uh, but we don't measure people based on whether or not they've accommodated a certain level of doctrinal you know, um, 
acumen. We base on the fact that do these people understand that what Jesus has come to do, and they're following him because he has done what he said he was going to do. That's what it really means at the essence of this, that, that to, to, to measure the Christian faith is both, yes, a doctrinal commitment, right? But it's also a devotional commitment. Doctrine and devotion, we say sometimes, right? That you, that you don't just get some kind of ascent into some mental knowledge that you've just exposed, that you've come across in the Bible or someone's book or some reformational book or whatever it may be, but that that imposes an absolute transformational power on your life and my life that creates a different level of devotion. And devotion, of course, means transformation, change, reordering of our lives, conforming to who God is, conforming to the priorities of Jesus, as we noted in our summary statement. The journey of faith is as important as the finish of our faith. It, the, the, your faith is finished insofar as you have believe it, believed in Christ as the one who has come to pay for your sins. Yes. But in the same sense... Until Jesus returns again, the, the, the process, the journey of faith is just as important. Because the journey of faith takes our focus off of always trying to perfect ourselves. How many of you get caught up in that trap sometimes? I know I do. Trying to become perfected Christians. When in reality, the real work of a Christian, the real work of someone who follows Jesus, is a humble and dependent faith that leans on the preserving grace of God. I was sitting with a, uh, a pastor friend of mine. Some of my friends in here will know who he is. named Stephen Gamble. Uh, this past week, just enjoying some time with him. And, and one of the, just, here's a guy who's, by the way, been in ministry, pastored his church 23 years ago. And, and I just need more guys like that in my life. And he just, he just, one of the statements he said, and I don't even know he realized he said it, but it just stuck with me. He's like, the longer I get in the tooth as a Christian, the more I realize that to confirm, and we'll talk about this in Second Peter, I mean, to confirm one's election is really rooted in our just clinging to the preserving grace of Jesus. It's, it's, it, yes, there is a pursuit of holiness, and yes, there's a pursuit of growing in our doctrinal commitments, of course, but really, those things serve us in leaning more and more faithfully and, 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 and uh, comfortably in the preserving grace of Jesus. That the Christian life, as our friend Ben talked about a few weeks ago in the, in the passage of the Good Shepherd, like, it is, to, is to lean on him as he leads us into good and plentiful pastures. That's what it means to be a sheep. To lean on the good shepherd all of our lives so that what the result is, is that you and I increasingly are moved into good and plentiful pastures to graze. Not the deficient pastures that we graze in in the everyday life that we find ourselves in. It's so powerful when we start to think about it. But it's more than just understanding what belief is here in John. We also got to think about what does it mean that these people turned and they went to the Pharisees and reported to him all that they had seen Jesus do. There's at least, in my mind, two dimensions of rejection. First dimension would be to 
Just remain unconvinced, to be hardened, right? You, you are in that atheistic, maybe Gnostic perspective that you, you, know, you can't trust what you're seeing. This is all a hoax. Like, we sometimes think that that is our greatest enemy in the church, is to go, well, the church is there to, to overcome that hardness. And in some sense, that's true. And a lot of our defenses of Christian faith are actually targeted at that kind of person. But my, I suggest to you that really the persons that you and I are targeting or should be targeting with the gospel are the very same persons that Jesus is targeting. The people who see the truth. This is the second group of people. They see the truth, they hear the truth, yet they still hold the truth at arm's distance. Because why? That truth threatens them. It threatens to undo their nice little tight, well-ordered kingdom. That's, I believe, where most of the gospel work in our lives should be attending to. Why? Because that reality both impacts many people that have grown up in the church who've left seemingly unconvinced, but it's not because they're unconvinced, it's because they know there's truth to it, but they're like but it requires so much of me. Or, in the church, we can get weary, we can get despondent, and we wonder if it's worth it to follow Jesus. And we recognize that that same pattern of rejection, that same pattern of unbelief can creep in even to someone who's been in the church all their life. So to reject can either mean you are in that atheistic or agnostic camp or just simply you see and you've heard the truth, but you just keep it arm's length distance. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who's the famous pastor from 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, talks about one of his commentaries about a woman who was a faithful tender, faithful member of his church. She was there every Sunday. Her husband would come sporadically and there was a point in which her husband would come and he came maybe three or four weeks in a row and then all of a sudden like he hadn't been there in weeks maybe even months and he's in on the occasion he's having some conversation with this woman between the service or right after the service or before the service it didn't really say he asks and inquires about her husband and here's her statement to him he's not here because he can't get over what you said the last time he was here and he doesn't want that to interrupt his life. That's why he's not here. So a lot of our battle against dark, the principalities of darkness is not so much about re, just not believing in terms of the knowledge, the facts of the gospel, but the fact that we don't believe because we don't want the implications of the gospel. And, and, and that's exactly what Jesus has targeted here in this passage, right? That's what we see exposed here in these next few verses, that the kingdom of God impacts, it interrupts our nice little kingdoms, and it threatens to undo them, and rightfully so. And so the next portion here, it says they come to tell the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are getting together with the council, and they're like, what are we going to do? This guy, man, we've seen his signs, in other words, they can't deny what they have seen. They're not even, at this point in the whole scenario, the whole story, they're not even denying that Jesus is doing what he's doing. But they're not going to believe it. And so that leads us into our second point. 
the plans of men, not just the perspectives of men, the choices that lie before us, a belief or rejection, but the plans of men, that the plans of men who choose to reject what they have seen and heard remain unchanged. Why? Well, wouldn't you reject something that, that threatened your personal sovereignty? Isn't this kind of what we do sometimes? No wonder these men respond the way that they do. And oftentimes when our personal sovereignty is threatened, what is it? We respond with vitriol, right? Just antagonism. Unkindness. And this is the Pharisees. And the big question right there is, what are we going to do with this guy? And it's a really important question. Now for you and I, hopefully it sounds absurd, right? What do you mean, what do you do with this guy? You worship this guy. You obey what he calls that he's telling you to do. But of course, that's nowhere in, like worship and obedience is nowhere in the reference point of this council at all. Not one ounce of it. They are bent on imposing their will on Jesus and to do everything they can to limit his scope of influence. See, the question that they're asking is not a question of like, Okay, so are we going to believe what he is or not? That's not the answer. That's not even the question that they're answering, asking. It's actually a question of jurisdiction, isn't it? It's a question of who's going to be in control. Is it going to be, are we going to wheel control this situation? Or are we going to let this little simpleton carpenter wheel control of the situation? And that's what it's really all about. Who's in control? It's not whether or not there's a debate about whether or not he's true or what he's doing is true. And so they continue on and says, if we let him go on like this, well, the the people are going to continue to follow him, and then the Romans are going to sweep in, and they are going to clamp down on us and uh, take away our place in our nation. The heart of everything that's transpiring in this council is relegated right here. If we let him go on like this. Our rejection of Christ is very much like the little guy who weighs 150 pounds doing a slap fight with some big ginormous dude of 300 pounds. It just refuses to believe that our will can't can't be imposed on him. That's exactly what is happening here in this council. And, they, and, and, and the heart of it's revealed why. Listen, the more we let this guy go on, more and more people are going to follow him. And what's the implication of that? Less people are going to follow us. And then the result's going to be, well, the Romans are going to come in, and uh, they're going to put the squadoosh on this whole thing. Now, what are they going to put the squadoosh on? Well... This is a puppet regime. I know y'all like that word, right? Uh, It's a puppet regime that's in place here. This council is only in power. Why? Well, because at the end of the day, the Romans are the shadow government behind them. And they're smart enough to know that the people will follow their own people as long and they can pull the strings from behind. So if there's problems in the land, what are they going to go do? Well, they're going to take this leadership out, and they're going to put another leadership in. And this was what they were absolutely terrified about. 
And so then enters this guy named Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. He's been the high priest, we, uh, we know, doesn't say in the text, for 18 years. And he fills the frantic leadership void of this council in the right moment, at least. At least it's what it looks like. And he has the guts to say what no one else at that council will say. What does he say? You don't even know what you're talking about. You know nothing, nor do you understand verse Uh, verse 50, what is better for you, that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. And he even uses this office of priest to prophesy that Jesus would die for the nation and all those who are far off. This long-term high priest in very crass manner comes in and says what everyone else in there wants to say, but they're they are too scared to say it. And you can imagine how they felt like when he says this. Like, have you ever been in a moment when someone says something or you, you witness something and it, like it feels like your blood goes cold? Like that's, can you imagine like, oh wow, it actually was said. He actually said it. And that's what Caiaphas is. He's got ice running through his veins. And he's using his office to prophesy in order to manipulate this leadership council into doing what is beneficial for them, but also for himself. Because again, he's managed to be a high priest for 18 years. Friends, the thing I want to note about that is very simple. Like, our fallen nature is more than just being blind and being deceived. Our fallen nature is all-out enmity with God. All out war with God. And Caiaphas just represents that for us. It represents for you and I who are now in Christ that we were once of the same mindset. Now we may not have manifested the same way as Caiaphas did, but this is very much what our former natures were. And if left to our own devices, what they at times may creep back into to, to hold Jesus at arm's length in our life because I just can't let his kingdom have that much influence on my life. And this is what it's been like since the garden, amen? It's where it has been. So the plans of men and the perspectives of men need to be noted here so that we can understand how they pair off against the next two points, which is the priorities of Jesus and the prerogatives of God. Now, before I jump into that third point, I want to note something here that maybe you have noticed um, here in Caiaphas's words. He uses the language of scapegoat. And you and I both, hopefully, if you're an astute reader of Scripture, you understand the scapegoat has some theological freight to it. The scapegoat was that goat that would, um, the priest would lay his hands on and then release out into the wilderness so that the sins of the people would be go with him out into the wilderness. It was a picture of the fact of really in God's economy and how he ordered their worship to show what people are trying to do with their sin. But what they really need to do with their sin is they need to have an atoning lamb of sacrifice for their sin. That's what the scapegoat actually represents. And what Caiaphas is doing here is he's erecting Jesus as the scapegoat. Why? So that he might prevent an all-out political and cultural collapse there in Israel, in Jerusalem. Now, you and I both know, if we've been paying attention to John, that John uses double meanings in a lot of places. And he intends for us to see something here, does he not? The irony of his plans and the absolute sovereignty of God's. Like that we can see in this moment 
That where Caiaphas is trying to prevent this political and cultural collapse, it's actually God who's going to use this event to prevent spiritual death. That where Caiaphas is concerned about the wrath of Rome, God's concerned with his wrath against sinners. And Caiaphas has no idea what really is going on here in this moment. It just shows you how blind he is and how blind all of us are at times, aren't we not? And so that leads us into this third point, priority of Jesus. In verse 54, what does Jesus do in response to this unbelief that is happening in this new persecution and these plans to put him to death? He's gotten word of this, and it says he no longer walked openly among the Jews. But what did he do? He went out into the wilderness to Ephraim, and he took his disciples there. In other words, he has intentions to spend some quality time with his disciples there in the wilderness, outside of town. Jesus redirects his priorities. He retreats with his disciples. Now, when we say retreat, let's make sure we're clear about something. He retreats with his disciples, but he's not retreating from his mission. Jesus is not scared of these leaders and their attempts because obviously at this point they've made several attempts to arrest him or desires to hurt him. They've not been able to do that to this point. So Jesus knows that's not really why he's retreating now because look, again, as I noted earlier, if they can't be convinced by the resurrection, nothing else will convince them. So now I must spend my time with my disciples moving from a public ministry to a private ministry. Why? Again, one, because the resurrection doesn't convince them, nothing will. But two, because Jesus will reveal his kingdom through his people. That's how he's revealing his kingdom. Not through government overthrows, not through political posturing, but he, he reveals his kingdom through his people. And he must prepare them for what lies ahead. That's what we get in Matthew 28. We all know the passage well. Go therefore, it says, I, all authority in heaven and on earth is, has been given to me. Go therefore, into, um, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that I have commanded you. His kingdom is not retreating. He is just taking time now to prepare his people to understand their responsibilities in his kingdom until he returns again. See, Jesus in this passage, Matthew 28, is king. All authority in heaven has been given to me. Jesus in this passage tells his people that he will reveal his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the church. Right? We make disciples, we baptize people into the church, we teach them, we go to them. So the mandate of a Christian, the mandate of a church, is not to make the world Christian. It's not to make a government Christian. I got into a debate with some friends uh, through Acts 29, someone, you know, about this statement of, let's make the city Christian. As far as I have read in Scripture, there is no indication that God has ever called a city to be Christian. He calls his people to reveal his kingdom in cities, in communities, among unbelievers. That as the world bumps up against the righteousness of his kingdom through his people, insofar as they see that, they get to see the gospel and hear the gospel and then therefore have the opportunity to be a part of his kingdom as they come into his church. 
That is Jesus' priorities. You can have your plans and you can have your perspectives, but these are clearly the priorities of our Savior and Lord Jesus. And they must be ours. I'll come back to that idea here in a few minutes. And then we finish with the final thought, the prerogatives of God in verses 55 through 57. It says they, um, the Passover of the Jews was at, hand, uh, was at hand, and they went up from the country to Jerusalem for, before the Passover to purify themselves, to prepare for this, this feast and this season. And they were looking for Jesus, and Jesus wasn't there, and they're wondering if he's going to come or not. And they've put the word out, if you know where he is, we intend to arrest him. John has one more little nugget here that kind of corresponds to point two that I think we want to just tease out just a little bit more. I noted earlier that Caiaphas' plans is to present Jesus as a scapegoat to preserve the political and cultural foundations of, Jer of Jerusalem. Christian, it's not your job to preserve the political and cultural interests of Christianity in the world. It's your job to reveal the kingdom. Okay? I'm, I'm, I believe that with all my heart. I believe that with all my heart. And this nugget here where he references the Passover is extremely important. You know the Exodus event? The Exodus event is when Egypt is in slavery. God sends Moses back to, to Pharaoh. And he gives them all of these different plagues. And these plagues are kind of escalating and escalating and escalating to the final plague, which, is, of course, is that God himself would uh, kill the last or would, would uh, sacrifice this, the firstborn of all the homes there. And God, what does God command his people to do on that fateful night as he's going to level the final sign? Just like Lazarus, by the way, is the final sign. See the connection here? They are to trust their God who says, go get an unblemished lamb sacrifice him, paint his blood above your doorposts. And that night, if you trust God by faith, by doing those things, engaging in that worship, what God is going to do for you, he's going to pass over your sin and your unrighteousness, but he is going to level his wrath on everything else. See, where Caiaphas... And these Pharisees, in their sinful desperation to rid themselves of Jesus, what they're really doing is not setting up Jesus as a scapegoat. They're actually preparing the final lamb for slaughter. They're preparing the final lamb for Passover. And where all these Jews are piously going to Jerusalem and, and, they're, and, they're, and they're preparing themselves to purify themselves for Passover... Isn't it ironic that these very same people are the ones with their blood on their hands? They're the ones with blood on their hands and they can never purify themselves enough. But all along, God's using the actions of wicked men and wicked people to carry out the greatest plan of all time. Peter gets to the heart of it in Acts chapter 2. His great sermon there, as the Spirit has fallen, and we're just going to look at a couple of verses here in verse 22, chapter 2 of Acts 2. 
I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 2 of Acts. The men of Israel, he says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. So John signs. With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay? God sent him as part of his unalterable plan. You crucified, he says, and killed by the hands of lawless men. In other words, it's not just the Pharisees who are on the hook here. It's all of Judea, Judea, Judea is on the hook here. It's all of them who are on the hook for what is happening here. But never fret, God raised him, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. We'll just stop right there. The reality is the prerogatives of God are never altered by the plans of men. And no matter what your perspectives are, they must always be conformed to the priorities of Jesus. The first point of perspectives of men relates to the priorities of Jesus, and the plans of men, the second point, relates to the prerogatives of God. And that's really where I want to land the plane this morning, with two questions connecting these points into our hearts, hopefully. Do our perspectives conform to Christ's priorities? Do our perspectives conform to Christ's priorities? Now listen, we're going to see so much of what God's priorities are for his disciples over the next few weeks until as we get more into John. But it's not hard to figure out what those, some of those are, right? That we listen and can conform to his word, that we're trusting by faith in the finished work of Jesus, that we are willing to be obedient and go where God calls us to go. I mean, we know those basic priorities that God calls us, and we'll see them more fruitfully in the weeks to come. But I think the, one of the best places that we can go to in this is 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through, what I got, 11? Yeah, 3 through 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to him to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful of the sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so far nearsighted, so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten what he has, that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conform your calling and election. I'm sorry, to confirm your, your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For if in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter gives us the pathway. He was there and he was witnessing to this when he was getting this mandate of go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And this was the sum total of it. Do your plan, do your perspectives about life 
conform to Christ's priorities? It's an honest question for us to wrestle with, is it not? The second question is similar, and it connects the second point with the fourth point. Do our plans conform to the prerogatives of God? These men wickedly thought that they could outmaneuver God. Now, they blatantly did that, but I wonder how many of us in this room sometimes go about our plans without even giving any consideration to what it is that God might want us to do in those things. You and I make countless decisions each day, most seemingly minor. But do we take our decisions and our plans and our intentions and lay them before the prerogatives of God. That doesn't mean that you need to be this kind of overly, like, you know, you know, squeeze out every little thing out of every decision you make. You need to be overly anxious about every decision you make. But what it means is you have the perspective of what James says in chapter 4 of his epistle. Come now, he says, verse 13, today or tomorrow, and say, I'm sorry, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Sounds, you know, good. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? The key question, by the way. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James gives us the pattern. The key question, what is your life? It's the most essential question to use and ask when you're asking, what are my plans? And are your plans being conformed by the prerogatives of God? And he says the prerogative of God is very clear here. Whoever does what is right. What is right in this text we've been studying here in Matthew? I'm sorry, in John chapter 11. Receive what you have been given. Believe in what you have been given. Follow what you have been given. See, verse 45 says some believed and they started the faith journey of faith right then and right there. They didn't have all the things together, but they did, and they walked, walked on. And that's where many of, if not most of us are, and we are on that journey. Hallelujah. But there may be people here today who are like, I heard this, but I'm just not ready to submit and bend myself to the will of God. Friends, what is your life? And what is it that you will plan to do that will be more glorious than what God has planned to do? That's the question. That's the question before all of us. So let's go back to the slap fight. How many of us in here this morning need to be like the dudes behind Dumpling going, I'm lining up behind this dude. I'm lining up behind Jesus. Or are we like the little buck 50 dude who just keeps getting up going tirelessly saying, well, maybe this boy will do this time. Maybe I'll get my way this time. 
Maybe I'll get my plans carved out this time. Friends, it's, the decisions are always there. Will our decisions be conformed to the, the priorities of Jesus, or will our, and will our plans be conformed to the prerogatives of God? God, help us now as we think of these things, consider these things, and may, Lord, as we prepare for your table this morning, may you be glorified in your people as we wrestle with these questions. Grow us through this word this morning. Encourage us through this word. Impart joy to us in this word. Impart, impart conviction where conviction needs to be imparted. Reveal sin where sin needs to be revealed. And may your people, may your people evermore continue down the pathway of faith. It's in Christ's name. Amen.